Good evening, it's Mike of New York. Is it evening? Is it daylight where you are? Is it nighttime? Is it blank? The night. I see Elon Musk put it in a tweet the other day that I responded to. I don't know what's up with Elon. He's been acting pretty weird lately, at least with his tweets. But hey, he's making a profit off of those uh, uh, investments that he tried to do with the takeover of Twitter, it would seem. It would seem. But who knows, really? Who knows how the game is played and what a tangled web they weave when they practice to receive? Maybe. Who knows? Speaking of receiving, Taiwan is now facing a uh, renewed threat, according to uh, Wang Zhao, uh, as uh, China has deployed its J-20 stealth attack aircraft. Uh, the J-20 is somewhat loosely based on the uh, Soviet, um, is it the Su-57 or the MiG-57? I always get them confused. But that is the Russian version of uh, a stealth fighter that Russia was developing. And there, and there seems to be some joint developments with the J-20 of China. Uh, although some people say that the J-20 is actually a knockoff of the YF-23 Black Widow that was built uh, alongside as a competitor to the F-22 Raptor back in the day. And uh, since only so many Raptors were built uh, because of the <laughs> astuteness in defense of the Obama administration, they only built 122 of them. Uh, in fact, if they could have shut down the entire military, uh, those people probably would have. You know, both the Obama and the Clinton administration, after the end of the Cold War, basically dismantled much of America's defense to a point that both on the East Coast and West Coast of the United States, there are less than a half a dozen, half a dozen, half a dozen, six per coast fighter aircraft at one time. And that is how bad it got. Uh, when the Bush administration made their changes. Now, when the Obama administration came into office, and by the time they left, it was almost the same ratio again. They had pretty much taken it down with sequestration. Um, and they had essentially uh, put America at risk, primarily because they thought, well, nothing could ever happen again that would threaten American air superiority. Yes, right, yeah. Or maybe somebody paid somebody to make sure that would happen, to open a gateway for a, a rival, say like a near peer, maybe China or Russia, to be able to come into play. Who was that son of a vice president who made uh, $1.5 billion in investment management fees? Uh, or, or rather was managing a $1.5 billion investment management fund? What was that Hunter Biden? Yeah, yeah, that was right. That, that was who it was. But that's something for another day and another topic. Right now, we are talking about China's People's Liberation Army Air Force and how they have deployed the PL-88F. Recently began deploying its stealth fighter jets, the J-20, to patrol the disputed East China Sea and the South China Sea. Now, the Chinese have said, this is just part of routine training sessions that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, right. Let's find out more from Britmore. China deploys most powerful fighter jet to South China Sea by Gabrielle Reyes on April 15, 2022. 
China's People's Liberation Army Air Force recently began deploying its most powerful stealth fighter jet, the J-20, to patrol the disputed East China Sea and South China Sea as part of routine training sessions, China's state-run Global Times reported on Wednesday. The PLUF has specifically ordered its J-20s to conduct combat patrols in the East and South China Seas designed to safeguard China's airspace security and maritime interests in the bodies of water, Ren Yukun told reporters at a press conference on April 12. Ren heads the Discipline Inspection and Supervision Team and is a member of the leading Chinese Communist Party group at China's state-owned aviation industry corporation of China, ABIC, which domestically manufactures the PLUF's aprons. The independent island nation of Taiwan, which Beijing claims is a territory of China, is located at the nexus of the East and South China Seas. China's ruling Communist Party has repeatedly threatened to reunify Taiwan, which lies off China's southeastern coast, with the mainland, i.e. China. These threats have translated to belligerent military drills by the PLF, which regularly orders air sorties to penetrate Taiwan's air defense identification zone, ABIC, as a form of intimidation. Taiwan's location along the East China Sea's southern limits is a short distance southwest of Japan's Senkaku Islands. Like Taiwan, Beijing claims the Senkaku as its own territory and has increased its military presence near the small, uninhabited islands in recent months. The People's Liberation Army, PLA, therefore shoulders the sacred duty of defending national security in China's airspace. It must be emphasized that when it comes to defending national sovereignty and security, the PLA will always be ready and capable of wielding its sword. Senior Colonel Wu Qian, a spokesman for China's Ministry of National Defense, said at a regular press conference on March 31st. Colonel Wu spoke in response to questions about an encounter earlier in March between a number of Bluff J-20s and U.S. Air Force F-35 stealth fighter jets over the East China Sea. U.S. Pacific Air Force's Commander Kenneth Wilsback confirmed the incident during an online discussion with military aviation experts on March 17 hosted by the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. They are flying it, J-20s, pretty well. We recently had, I wouldn't call it an engagement, where we got relatively close to the J-20s along with our F-35s in the East China Sea, Wilsback said during the virtual forum. He noted that the U.S. pilots involved in the face-off were relatively impressed with the PLUF's command and control of the J-20s. It's still too early to tell exactly what they intend to do with the J-20, dash whether it's going to be more like an F-35. That is primarily an air superiority fighter that has an air-to-ground capability, Wilsback said. At this point, it is really difficult to say what exactly, you know, China's ultimate goal is in all this. Obviously, the Chinese have their own particular moves. And when we say Chinese, you have to remember both of these are China. The Republic of China is Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, as the communists often choose to call whatever they take part in peoples, even if it's just very few peoples who actually take part in their governance, um, uh, begin to 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 be a part of it. Uh, there is a lot of things that have to, you know, be looked at and uh, you know uh, checked on when it comes to these kinds of stories. Obviously, uh, there is um, 
a lot of things going on here, uh, you know. And uh, when a lot of these uh, events occur with the uh, various uh, forces in play, especially uh, with regards to uh, these things with, with the People's Republic of, of China, and uh, you know J20s and, and the F-35s and, and all of these things, one begins to wonder just how far it could go because both are nuclear armed nations, although uh, China is less of a hair trigger uh, nuclear armed nation, as far as most people say their deployments are, are generally seen as uh, uh, a little less uh, rapid in their in their uh, actions um, with the uh, with the uh, uh, you know uh, developments that that go on and uh, you know when, when, when you look at what they were saying with uh, uh, General Kenneth Wisback's uh, claims in that article from Bar as far as how uh, you know China is uh, you know very much taking a, an active role in things. And uh, what exactly is is moving forward here, especially with the you know the presence of the of the PRC and the F thirty fives, they have had uh, quite a few uh, interesting things. Now the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, you know, as was mentioned uh, in that article that we did the playback on from Report, um, pretty much talked about this this issue, and uh, we'll put that in the show show notes. So this took place on March fourteenth, not too long ago. About a, about a month ago or so, and uh, how there had been, you know, some uh, some basic interaction between uh, U.S. F-35s and uh, Chinese uh, aircraft. Uh, let's listen to what uh, General uh, Wilsbach had to say uh, in general on the topic of the uh, peace and order security situation uh, in the, uh, you know, East China Sea and, and other parts of the Pacific where, uh, you know, these, these events can be but, uh, well, of course, obviously uh, a concern, especially for people who are concerned about peace and order in the region. So let's take a look at exactly what uh, General Wishbach is up to and what he's watching right now with regard to this after this report out of China. I'm, I'm watching China very closely during this Russia-Ukraine crisis because... And I explained this at, at, uh, at AFA, but the Chinese word for for crisis has a connotation of opportunity, a dangerous opportunity. That's, that's kind of the way it translates. And so they look at crises um, certainly as a dangerous situation, but they also look for the opportunity in that dangerous situation. And so I ask everybody to keep a close eye on not only China, but also North Korea. Uh, which we've seen them shooting off um, ballistic missiles uh, since you know, since this started. And so is that them taking advantage of the world's attention in Europe? I don't know. Um, but um, the same goes holds true for China. You know, I'm keeping a close eye on where they might take advantage. Um, and what if they do? And we have this only you know one theater policy. We're going to be short on capacity um, if, if we would have to be in two places at the same time which for a, a country of, of our size and um, stature, and we have interests all over the world, it's not unfathomable to uh, imagine that you might have to be in two places at the same time. 
That's very good. And for our audience, just to, just to remind you, and I know we've got a lot of Air Force people out there, but remember, in Desert Storm, we had 158 combat squadrons. Uh, and today we have like 55. So we're one third the size that we were 30 years ago. And readiness wise, while I'm not getting into specifics, we're significantly less uh, ready than we were back then. Um, so these are issues that really need to garner uh, the attention of uh, the Congress and the American public. Uh, I, someone told me a statistic the other day where the Chinese pilots are actually getting twice as much flying time as US Air Force pilots. And I can remember during my career, we prided ourselves on having a training edge. Um, I think we still have a training edge, but hey, uh, hours in the cockpit mean something. So I, just a, a little bit of reinforcing statistics out there for the audience, right? Um, now clearly fifth generation aircraft are gonna become increasingly important in the, uh, in the Pacific. And that really kind of opens our uh, aperture when it comes to training and partnership engagement. One of the cool things about the F-35, other than performance, is that we have 14 nations now that are operating the same aircraft. So now that our allies are gaining this capability, how does that change the way you think and plan about operating in the region. Okay. So it's great that uh, the Republic of Korea has uh, their, their first 40 um, F-35As um, and they've ex expressed a desire to maybe get some more. Uh, Japan is um, still still um, taking delivery on theirs, um, Australia as well. Um, and uh, Singapore has, has um, bought into the program. Uh, they don't have any jets yet, but they're, they're going to get some soon. I mean, there are others um, in the region that are interested, which I'll, I'll save for, for their announcement. Um, but um, what we do, especially um, when we all get together in Hawaii, uh, like we did last fall uh, for the Pacific Air Chief Conference, uh, we had a breakout session for all the F-35 users, and we spent the afternoon comparing notes. Um, and um, there's a wide range of experience with fifth generation in the room from the United States and Australia. Um, and then the other countries who are really just getting fifth generation for the first time um, and the ability to share the lessons learned. So as an example, you remember this, when we first got the F-22, we flew the F-22 for about five years, like an F-15. So we learned, you don't have to do that anymore. You can fly tactics uh, that are commensurate with fifth generation capabilities. Well, we've, we've shared with our partners who are buying uh, F-35s, you don't have to fly it like an F-4 or an F-16 that it's replacing, um, but rather you can do fifth generation tactics. And so they're not doing the five years flying old tactics, they're going straight in flying the newer tactics. And so that gives them a head start compared to what, what we learned when we first, say, got the F-22. Um, and uh, maintenance practices, so as you know, taking, uh, taking care of a fifth generation aircraft is a lot different on the maintenance flight line than it is um, taking care of a fourth gen. And so teaching them um, those uh, techniques of especially low observable maintenance and making sure that the most important part of a stealth aircraft is the stealth. Um, and if you don't take care of that, you've just spent you know, several hundred million dollars um, for a system that's really not that much better um, than a fourth gen platform. So low observable maintenance is 
is something that, that we talk about um, quite a bit. But then the other aspect of, you know, what could you do operationally if your allies and partners are joining you with, um, with their assets in a contingency or in a crisis or a conflict, and you, you have their fifth generation fleets um, at our disposal to be able to create effects. And, and that is something that, you know, I, I think is our strength. It's almost our superpower. When you think about China's team and who's going to be on their team and the capabilities, you know, one, their team is really small, but what capabilities could they bring that, you know, would trouble us? Their team doesn't bring a whole lot of troubling capabilities, frankly. But, but if you look at it from China's perspective, what about our team? Our team has a lot of military capability, and some of it is fifth generation, which if you're a military planner in China, that should worry you because that's that's a very good capability that can counter what they can bring to the fight. The Indo-Pacific region you know, certainly would provide some kind of solidarity for the nations of the Pacific to come together and oppose um, something like that. So another uh, lesson that you know organizations, whether they're you know, uh, very um, prescriptive like NATO or, you know, even ad hoc kind of organizations that come together for the purpose of uh, current events. You know, either one of those, um, I'm hopeful that uh, the, the Chinese uh, will, uh, will pay attention to. The other, the other aspect is how difficult it is to do what the Russians are trying to do. And we're seeing militarily, you know, what, what, um, roadblocks and you know, hurdles they've had to overcome and haven't been as successful as you know, we anticipated. Um, the, what, what China would have to do and some of theirs with the terrain that they have um, uh, to, to contend with around where their neighbors are at um, is something else that they should consider. Is that it's very difficult to conduct an invasion and to achieve the military objectives. And, perhaps they might not be ready to do what they would want to do. And the immense cost that Russia is incurring to do this uh, from national treasure, from the lives that, that they have uh, they, they have used up, they've killed so many of their own people as well as uh, those in Ukraine. And I'm hopeful that China will pay attention to that as well. So that's uh, General Kenneth uh, Wilsback, you know, speaking at this uh, Mitchell Institute gathering, of course, uh, he is the commander of uh, of the uh, uh, Pacific Air Forces, and uh, based, on, I believe, out of, uh, out of Joint Air Base Pearl Harbor or Joint Air Base Hickam, but I do understand that they do work out of Kadena in uh, Japan, in Okinawa, and uh, just as well as uh, they, they do work uh, out of uh, Guam uh, and Anderson Air Force Base uh, also in, in that area as uh, you know, the Pacific Air Forces have their widespread areas of concern and areas of, uh, of capability and, uh, and operation. Let's listen to some more from uh, General uh, Wilsbach. There's not enough Patriot and Paz to, to go around uh, for, for all of those, those places. So I've asked the Army uh, to, to work on that for us. And what we actually need is something that's a lot more agile than a Patriot or a Thad because it takes um, several several C-17s uh, or, you know, one, one big ship to be able to move um, those assets around. So they're, they're movable and they're mobile, but they're not agile from the standpoint of it takes a lot of lift capability to move those assets around. Um, so what we actually need is something, it's probably directed energy, um, but we probably need something that is agile so that we can get after those threats 
um, that I mentioned um, that, but it's small. So perhaps you can put it on the back of a, a small truck, move it by a C-130, get it out to one of those islands. And you do have some capability against ballistic missiles, some that maneuver on the re-entries, also um, stealthy cruise missiles and um, the hypersonics. And so if we have that capability out at the, the spokes of the ACE, uh, ACE employment, as well as at the hubs, we're gonna be in a lot uh, better shape. And you know, if I have a choice, what I'd like the Army to do is put some more dollars into that base defense and less on long-range fires because I actually um, have access through Air Force Global Strike Command. Um, we have access to long-range fires, um, but we don't have access to all the base defense that we need. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, and as you're talking to, I'm thinking of what was just in the news recently, and that's a Russian attack on the uh, training center uh, out there along the border with the Poland, they launched 30 cruise missiles and they managed to shoot down 22, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, eight got through. I mean, it just, it reiterates the importance of, uh, of air-based defense, not just against airplanes, but against missiles as well. Uh, and, and if you don't mind me interrupting, absolutely. when, when um, somebody shoots say 30, missiles at you and you shoot down 20 of them, those are 20 effects that didn't occur. And even if eight get through, you know, we have the capability to do rapid run rate repair. And uh, we also have the capability to get everything airborne when we know the attack is going to occur. And so you can recover from that. And But, but what's happened um, by the adversary is they've used up two thirds of their magazine if, if you can keep that up. And at some point they start running out of munitions. No, that's an excellent point too, uh, because for years, I know uh, in my career and years too, um, we practiced operating under attack. Uh, and it's not like, okay, you come under attack and all of a sudden that base is negated. No, that's not true. Um, you get back into being able to operate uh, uh, right away. Now, as a, you talked about the ability to, to maneuver uh, defenses. Um, one of the issues that I can recall in my time as the warfighting headquarters commander out there in the Pacific going through several terminal fury exercises was operational control of the Aegis capable cruisers and destroyers. And the question of who's got the final say so in terms of whether they might be used for defense of a particular location versus fleet requirements. Have you been able to work through that with your Navy counterparts? We have, and a lot of the audience might not know that one of my other roles is the Area Air Defense Commander, uh, which means I'm responsible for um, the ballistic missile defense of the theater. And uh, in that role, I negotiate and uh, communicate with um, the Army, with Patriot Thad, as well as the Navy for Aegis. And uh, frankly, we're, we're not caught up in the um, who has OPCON of the asset or, or even who has TACON. Uh, we really operate on uh, direct support, um, especially with the Navy. Um, and so if we have an area that we need additional coverage by an Aegis uh, ship, uh, we talk about it and we move it around. And um, ultimately, the Indo-PACOM commander has um, the authority over where the ship um, ends up. Um, but I've had really no issues with the Navy uh, during my time in PACAF when we needed the ship uh, to, to be in a particular location, maybe because a Patriot or a Fab was down, we moved the ship in. 
um, and that that creates costs somewhere else with the sure. Navy strategy. Um, but um, we we seem to be able to work through direct support uh, pretty routinely, and it really hasn't been much of an issue. So we're listening to, uh, as I said, General Kenneth uh, Wilsbach. Uh, General Wilsbach is, uh, of course, attending this, uh, uh, or attended, rather, this event uh, at the Mitchell Institute. And, uh, of course, uh, and uh, uh, this is a virtual aerospace nation event. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, you know, he, he is uh, commander of the U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific Command and executive director of the Pacific Air Combat Operations Staff. And, uh, sorry, I don't have the name of the head from the Mitchell Institute, maybe it's written a little bit further down. Um, you know, and, and, and basically what they're saying, it's no secret that the Chinese and the North Koreans uh, have a threat that is driving the Department of Defense and its strategic thinking and operational concepts with force sizing considerations and the associated technological investments that need to be made. So a little while ago, General Wisbeck was talking about the uh, the uh, problems with that, and that that, of course, is a theater area defense missile system that they use to defend uh, allies and uh, American territories. You have to remember, a lot of people think, oh, the Pacific uh, Ocean goes up to the coast of California. So the, the defense of the, of the nation starts uh, at the coast of California, Oregon, Washington. No, it goes a little bit further out than that because first of all, you got to think of Hawaii, which is a state. And, uh, you know, the 50th state uh, has has a, a huge stretch of area. And then further than that, where America's day begins on the other side of the international gate line uh, is, is the U.S. territory of Guam. And uh, it's 100 almost 200,000 residents, 180,000 basically is the population of Guam. And you have another oh, 80,000 or so living in the island of uh, Saipan, which is to the north, and, and more population, American citizen population living in Rota and Kenya. Uh, you also have the Federated States of Micronesia. You have the Republic of Palau. Now, Palau and Micronesia are, uh, are, are separate countries. They're, they're independent countries. But these countries are territories that, that cover vast areas of the central and western Pacific region. And so the border of the United States actually borders with Asia all the way out near Guam. And uh, on that side of the international state line, that is where you see the, the differences. And that is the vast area that is almost 9,000 miles long from the East Coast all the way to Guam. Uh, and beyond that the United States has to defend. We also have massive fishery resources in that area uh, that literally can feed the world, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of times over. Uh, and, and these need to be protected and, and these resources need to be developed. So, you know, I'm going to put a link to the uh, Mitchell Institute uh, for Aerospace Studies seminar that took place and uh, General Kenneth uh, Wilsbach's visit there and then we will uh come back with more here on mike of new york on this and other important topics i'm mike of new york this has been a look at security situations in the asia pacific region